All right, let's go ahead and bow our heads. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come before you and to worship you. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at your word and help us to see what you would have us to see in your son's precious name. Amen. All right, so we're continuing the crucifixion of Jesus. And last uh, week we had him bow, uh, bow his head and give up the, the ghost and remember that it, we had the resurrection from the graves where the people walked People walked, in, walked into Jerusalem that had been dead for a long time. And uh, the centurion at the bottom of the cross said, Surely, truly, this was the Son of God. So there's all this testimony of Jesus. So we're in Matthew 27, starting at verse 57 now. And when evening was come, there was a rich man named Arimathea, of, of Arimathea, named Joseph, who himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate and begged for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, where he had, which he had hewn out of rock and rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. Then there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulcher. All right, so we want to look at this. The time frame on this whole event, and we're just going to cover this. This is the time frame I believe this follows. Uh, most people in Christianity and religion say that Jesus died Friday, spent the day in the grave on Saturday, and was resurrected on Sunday. And they'll go through all kinds of mental gymnastics to show you how uh, you can count three days and three nights in there. I've never figured it out. Uh, they'll say he was there Friday. Part of Friday because it hadn't set, the sun hadn't set part of Saturday, all of Saturday and part of Sunday. But even though the women came before the sun came up, they'll say he was there for Sunday. And um, I believe that he died on Wednesday as a sacrifice for the, of Passover. He was in the grave all of Thursday, which was Passover day. On Friday, the high priest, as we're going to see here, go and tell Pilate, you know, this guy said that, he was going to resurrect. We need to seal his grave up so this, you know, his disciples don't steal the body. Saturday was the Sabbath again. And then on the first day available, the women went to anoint the body with all the spices that they would have, which then gives you Thursday, Friday, Saturday in the grave and all those nights in the grave. Um, my belief is out there. People believe it. I mean, it's not me who invented this. <laughs> But it's just, this is what I have believed. I've never believed a Friday crucifixion because Passover is a Sabbath day and it's called a high Sabbath. But it doesn't really matter. I just bring that up because it fits the truth a lot better. But he said Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. He died Wednesday afternoon to 3 o'clock and then he was buried just before sunset on Wednesday. Because Passover started, the actual Passover feast would have started that year that I believe he died on Thursday. He was in the grave all day Thursday. Friday would have been everybody preparing for another Sabbath day. Because remember, on Sabbath in the Jewish families, you can't cook, you can't light a fire, you can't do anything. If your food is cooking, you're okay. But you can't start a fire, you can't even keep the fire going on the Sabbath day because that's work. So on the Friday, they would prepare all their meals and get everything ready to go for the Sabbath. And this is when the priest, when the leaders will come to Pilate and say, hey, you know, we need a guard, which we'll get to that after this section. But as evening was coming on the day that Jesus died, 
a man named Joseph of Arimathea came to Pilate and said, can I have the body? Now in Matthew it doesn't tell us, but in, in the other gospels it says that Pilate was kind of surprised. You mean he's dead already? We just put him on the cross at noon and you're telling me he's dead and it's not even, not even six o'clock. And remember we've talked about this, how the crucifixion was designed to be a long lasting punishment. Most people didn't die for a week. And so he's going to Pilate and saying, hey, this guy's dead. It's been less than six hours. And Pilate sent out the soldiers to go, okay, if he's dead, go ahead and give it to him, but make sure they're dead. And because the, the priest and the prophets, uh, uh, the Sanhedrin, excuse me, not prophets, but the priest and the Sanhedrin, they're going, well, yeah, we want him off the cross before Passover because this is an important day to us. So they were going to go break his legs. And remember we've said that what they would do on the cross is they would push up against the cross so they could catch a breath because their arms were pulled in such a way that they could not breathe until they pushed up against the cross. So breaking their legs made them die quicker. And so this pilot sent the soldiers out to break these guys' legs. Okay, we want them dead. We're going to go break their legs and, and kill them. Uh, Mark it gives them that they found that Jesus was dead. They thrust a spear up into his side and out came blood and water. His, his blood had already separated, which forensic scientists tell us that, that showed that he was dead and his blood and plasma were separating in his body. So we know that he was dead. It was one of those proofs that we have dead because every once in a while you come, well, he didn't die, he just fainted on the cross and they buried him when he was still alive. And that's how he got back up and was seen by everybody. All right? Pretty amazing that somebody that has been brutally beat in two days gets up and walks around. <laughs> but you know, it's just one of those things that doesn't make sense. He definitely didn't swoon. The, the spear up into his side proves, proves that and through the testimony that they didn't fully understand. We're just trying to help you understand. When you meet these skeptics, they don't know what they're talking about because they have never read the accounts. It's funny when you talk to people who don't believe in the Bible and you go, tell me about it. Tell me about what specifically, well, you know, it just says such and such. Well, where does it say that? Oh, I don't know. I've just been told. So you're telling me you don't believe the Bible and you've never read the book. And most of them have never read the Bible. Very few times will you come across somebody who's read the Bible and has any, has any questions really about it. Most of them just say, well, I've just been told or I've heard. And it's kind of fun. It's fun talking to them because they don't know what they're talking about. But it says that Jesus' body would be buried in the tomb of a rich man in Isaiah 53. And here's Joseph of Arimathea going to Pilate and saying, let me have Jesus' body. And he takes the body, wraps it up, and puts it in the tomb. And you know, this is a big deal for Joseph of Arimathea because by touching a dead body, he becomes unclean for Passover. He cannot participate in Passover because of touching this dead body, which is why the women have not gone before Sunday morning to, to anoint the body, because they are wanting to be clean for the Passover, and then they need to be clean for the, the regular Sabbath day, and it takes them a while to be able to get there. And then it says that he rolls a great stone over the tomb, all right? And many people believe that this stone was somewhere between 800 to 1,000, uh, 2,000 pounds. And we're talking about a big stone. Uh, huh? 
2,000 pounds. Yeah, a ton. A ton. A ton. I don't know if it was quite that big, but it was significant. It wasn't something, and they rolled it down a little incline. And if you see pictures of tombs in that, from that area, there's always a small incline to roll the stone to close the tomb, which means it is a big deal to move the stone back up that incline because we're talking, even at eight or 900 pounds, if you've ever tried to move anything up an incline, it's not an easy thing. Uh, I've tried to push cars up even small inclines, and they're, they're tough to do. You get enough people, you can do it. <laughs> get enough power, you can do it. But this stone blocks the tomb's entrance. And then this little, little point, another proof of, the, of the, the story is verse 61. There was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting against the sepulcher. Because another thing skeptics will say, well, these two Marys were just so stupid they went to the wrong tomb and found an empty tomb and said that Jesus was resurrected. <laughs> yeah, but I've heard it. They may not say so stupid, but you know, they'll say they went to the wrong tomb. Uh, they went to the cross. When his body was taken down, they followed him. They knew exactly where this tomb was. And... You know, we're talking about his mother and a, and a woman who deeply loved him because of casting out the demons. Uh, she knew where the tomb was. <laughs> when, when they go on that Sunday morning, they are not lost. They did not lose their bearings. They did not go to the wrong tomb. All right? And we laugh about this, but you know, these are the kinds of stories that are put out by the skeptics. Jesus didn't die. And his disciples came along, and somehow when he didn't die, he moved a big 800-pound stone with all the injuries and beating that he took and nails through his feet, making it hard to walk, somehow moved this big stone out of the way, overcame the guard standing outside his tomb, and showed up at the disciples to, and amazed them that he was alive. Without opening the door. Yeah, without opening the door, yeah. We've got to remember they're not, not opening the door. You know. But somehow... You know, after having been beaten, which takes days and days to overcome, we end up with this kind of story, all right? Or we get the idea that it's going to come out that the disciples stole the body. The women went to the wrong tomb. Now, I can guarantee if you, if the women went to the wrong tomb to find Jesus' body, uh, the Sanhedrin knew where he was, had been buried because they had his grave sealed and marked and probably put their signet rings in the wax as well just to make sure nobody, nobody got into this tomb. And so they would have said, yeah, these dumb women, you know, they went, to, they went over there and here's his tomb. They would have known where the tomb was as well. So a lot of these stories that come up are, sound so far-fetched. And uh, so we see him, he's been buried. Thursday comes along for the Passover. Everybody celebrates Passover except for Joseph of Arimathea who can't because he's unclean. Verse 62. How long was he unclean for? 24 hours. Well, because he started in the evening, I'm not sure if he would have been, yeah, but definitely till the evening, but he would have been having some troubles with it. Yeah. But you remember, what we call evening was day. At 6 o'clock, it's the new day. As soon as the sun goes down, it's a new day. It's not evening oh. to them. Evening is that hour, the, the late afternoon when the sun's setting, which is when Joseph of Arimathea is burying him. So he would have been in a kind of a catch... Technically, maybe he was, on, you know, ceremony. I think he missed. I think he missed Passover, <laughs> but that just means he went to small Passover later on, a month later, because uh, if you were unclean for the Passover, you could celebrate a month later. 
Verse 62, now the next day that followed the day of preparation, the chief priest and the Pharisees came together unto, Pi unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we do remember that this deceiver said while he was yet alive, after three days I will arise again. Command therefore the sepulcher to be made sure again until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say to the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have your watch, go your way, make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. So we see here, and I love this, because God orchestrated this so that we would know for the absolute surety that Jesus resurrected. All right? Because they are going to go and seal this tomb. Now, before they seal this tomb, you can guarantee that they did one very important step. They made sure that there was a body in that tomb. Because they're going to seal it and say, this tomb is occupied. And it's going to have Pilate's seal on it. And as I said, I can imagine they probably put their signet rings in the wax too to make sure that if it was broken, the, the Romans couldn't just open it up and seal it back up again. They're going to make sure that nobody has sealed this. And what that would mean is they put these... You know, we would go almost police tape and then they would seal it with their with wax and, their, and imprint it with their rings and their signets to show this has been sealed. And, and I, as I say, they're going to make sure that the body's there. You know, they're not going to seal an empty tomb. And so even though it doesn't say that they checked the tomb to make sure that he's there, it was definitely sealed so that, and the body in it. All right? And they put a guard around it. And this is a, a Roman guard. And Rome was very good at guarding things. They did not let things stay unguarded when they were done with it. And so we see there couldn't have been a better proof. The Sanhedrin, the scribes and the Pharisees, actually made it a proof that Jesus rose from the dead because they sealed that tomb. And so for him to come out, and they put a guard out around it. If they had not done that, then they could have used the excuse that the disciples stole the body, or somebody stole the body. But because they guarded it, they made it a sure thing that nobody stole the body. Okay? And remember, you guys commented, Jesus, you know, when we talked about Jesus getting out of the tomb and just walking around, he could get in and out. He did not need the stone moved, but he moved the stone for one reason so that people could see that the tomb was empty. He didn't need the stone moved. He's God. He could he just step out because he can go in and out of rooms right now. We, they're not, the stone was not rolled away. You know, it wasn't Jesus standing outside, Father, move the stone so I can get out. It was, Father, move the stone so they'll know I'm gone. They're going to know that I'm not here anymore. This is the beauty of what's going on in here. And Pilate says, okay, you've got your, you've got your guard. I'm going, to give you the, I'm going to give you the guard. You go seal that tomb. You go make sure that nobody's going to get in it, and you're going to make sure a body stays in there. Ver, chapter 28, verse 1. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and, and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. And his countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and become his dead men. And the angel answered unto the women, Fear not you, 
For I know that you seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goes before you into Galilee. There you shall see him, lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy, and did run to bring the disciples' word. And as they went to tell the disciples, behold, Jesus came met them saying, All hail! And they, and they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said unto them, Be not afraid, go tell my brethren that, that they go into Galilee, and there they shall see me. All right, the resurrection of Jesus. What makes Christianity different from all other religions besides the fact that it's a relationship with God is we have a risen founder. And if you go to Jesus' tomb, you will find an empty tomb. If you go to Muhammad's tomb, you find Muhammad there. If you go to Buddha's tomb, you find Buddha there. You go to any of the great leaders of any other religion, and you find a tomb that people go to worship at. You go for Jesus, and it's empty. He is alive. And, and it says, in the, end of, in the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Okay, Sabbath would have ended Saturday at 6 o'clock or when the sun set, six, six, you know, 6 or 7, right in that time. Sabbath ended. The women did not run right out to the Sabbath, as, uh, to the tomb right at the end of Sabbath because it was not a wise thing back then to go out at, at dark. E even around Jerusalem, it was not a great thing to go around uh, out at dark. So they waited until it began to dawn. And this word for began to dawn literally means at that, just at that time that you can start seeing shadows move. I mean, they were out early. Okay, they're not waiting for the sun to rise completely, but they're out early. And we're told in the other gospels that they were kind of talking amongst themselves, okay, how are we going to get into it? We've got our spices. How are we going to get in? There's this great big tomb. And, you know, I'm figuring they probably, you know, most people kind of figured they, they were going to ask the guard, can you move it? We want, you know, move the, move the stone. We want to anoint the body. And they're chattering with each other. You know, when we get there, what are we going to do? We can't, you know, we can't move this stone. And we have Mary Magdalene. And I love the way <laughs> that uh, Matthew keeps going, the other Mary. Okay. It's only Jesus' mother, but he doesn't say that it's his mother. It's always the other Mary. Okay. When, he, when Jesus gives uh, command to uh, Mary that she's going to be taken care of by John, it's, you know, he says, the other Mary. Uh, and it's just a funny way to, it just strikes me as funny. He doesn't say the mother of Jesus or, you know, or any of that, or, you know, Mary, Jesus' mother. It's just the other Mary. He's really downplaying her role in many ways, which with your, somebody in the... Yeah. Yeah, Mary Magdalene was a very key player in all of this. She was there taking care of needs. and, and uh, But, you know, they da Matthew downplays Mary so much, and you go like the Catholic Church, and it's all about the Virgin Mary and everything, and you look at what he does, and he downplays her. You know, if he was playing on their game, it would be, yeah, and the Virgin Mary was there as well. You know, it would have been a big, big deal. But, of course, we know in his case, he's going to know that she wasn't a virgin because she has three sons besides Jesus, plus daughters. We don't know how many daughters. It just says daughters because when, when they go to Jesus, they name three, three brothers of his that come to get him and, and your sisters, plural. 
So we know there's at least five children that Mary has in the process of all this. And it says, and behold, there was a great earthquake. No, this is a second earthquake in four days. <laughs> all right. Remember, we had an earthquake when he died that cracked open the tombs and, and the graves and, and the dead started walking around Jerusalem. And we talked about how amazing, I mean, most people forget about that and how crazy that would be. You know, you're, you're walking along and there's great-great-grandpa talking to you telling, you, telling you that you need to know Jesus and follow God. Uh, it had been a quite a bizarre turn of events. And the earthquake came and an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and rolled the stone back. They did not have to worry about the stone because, the, again, they didn't talk about it here, but in, a, in the other Gospels, they talk about how we're going to move that stone. And it says, his countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And this is the picture of angels. White, white garments. So white, I mean, if you picture snow, I don't know how many of you have really seen deep, pure, fresh snow. It dazzles the eyes when, this, when the sun hits it. And this is the picture they always have of the angels. They're dazzling bright when they describe them as white as snow. And God tells us we're as white as snow because we've been cleansed in the, in the blood. And it's kind of amazing that his blood makes things white, but you know, it is. And it says that we are pure white in his image in his, from him. And it says, for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. So it says that the guards collapsed. <laughs> You know, they became his dead man. They fainted away. Uh, these are brave Roman soldiers. Okay, these are not cowardly, wimpy security guards that have just been hired for the night. You know, for a night. These are elite Roman soldiers. They see this angel and faint away, which tells us, you know, the power of an angel. In Hezekiah's day, the angel of the Lord kills just shy of 200,000 men in one night. One angel. You know, angels are not something to play with, and the power and the presence of God amazes them, and they faint away. And this is something we want to think. You know, and I think this is so funny, because the next verse says, uh, in verse 5, And the angel answered unto the women, Fear not you, for I know that you come to seek Jesus, who is crucified. Do you notice something kind of interesting here? The soldiers yeah, faint. have fainted. But the women, the women <laughs> are standing there, probably amazed, probably in shock, but apparently have not fainted. You know, the guys have fainted away. They're dead. They're, you know, they're, you know, I take it as dead. I mean, either that or they're in such shock that they can't do anything. And the women are listening to the angel talk to them. And this is one of the proofs that this story was written by God. And we've talked about this before. In this day, a woman who was the eyewitness of a crime could not testify against that person. They had no standing at all among the men. And they could not be witness. And who are the ones that God tells and uses as a witness to for the, that Jesus is resurrected, he goes and tells the women first. So if the women then tell the disciples, if this was, not, if this was a made-up story, 
they would not be the women that discovered Jesus's body and it would not be the women telling the disciples this has happened it would be it would be one of the disciples been brave enough to go to the go to the the sepulcher and find that Jesus was alive yeah. again history and a proof of this being a true story because if it wasn't true they would have altered it that the men would be the heroes and the women would not be be mentioned so we just bring this up that God elevated, has always elevated the place of women all through Scripture. Even though that we were the ones that sinned first. So <laughs> Started all the trouble, but you know, also get blessed. Yes. So, and he says, he is not here, he, for he is risen. Come and see the place where he lay. Now, it doesn't say they went in, but they were invited. Go in, see that he's gone. I can almost guarantee that Mary Magdalene and Mary went inside to make sure that he was not there. Actually, Luke says they did go inside. Huh? Luke says, Luke says they both went in? And they okay, I forgot that one. Because uh, I know that John is later on going to go in. But, yeah. uh, and they see that he's gone. And the, and the angel is witnessed. And it says, go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead. And behold, he goes before you into Galilee. There shall you see him. Lo, I have told you. Okay. He's not here. <laughs> Go where he's at. <laughs> he's going to meet you in Galilee. And remember, the disciples, for the most part, come from Galilee. Jesus has been raised up in Galilee, up in Nazareth. Okay. That's his home. That's where he's from. And why are they in Jerusalem? It's Passover. It's time for all the Jewish men to go to Passover. And the, all the Jewish men were to go to Passover and celebrate Passover. And he says, okay, I'm going to meet you back in Galilee. We're going to go back home. Now, he got there a lot faster than he did because it doesn't take him any time to go anyplace anymore. It's going to take them days to get back to Galilee. It, even today, by car, it would take most of a day. It's several hundred miles to get from Jerusalem to, to Galilee. And they would have taken days. Now, this was meant they might have even decided to get back home really quick. They might have decided to go through Samaria instead of going around it to get back home. But he says, they are back, and I'm going to see them in Galilee. What good news. Mary has seen her son die, watched him being put into a sepulcher, and now he is no longer there. He has been resurrected. That would be such great news. And you know, we as Christians really need to understand this news is wonderful. Our Savior is not dead. He rose from the dead in victory over sin. Sin and death could not hold him. And Satan could not be victorious. There's an old, old song about Satan having a great big party because Jesus is dead and you know, he's won the battle and Jesus is dead. And then three days later, he comes out and the song you know, goes into how he loses everything and how he couldn't hold him. It's a quite funny song, but, you know, but it is that power. Satan, for a short period of time, felt he had won. He had the Son of God covered with sin and defeated, he thought. <laughs> he thought for a short time. And all of a sudden, he's alive. He's alive. And it's kind of interesting. We're actually covering this story close to Resurrection Sunday, which is very rare. Last time I did a gospel, we didn't cover anywhere near Resurrection. And 
it said, verse 8, and they quickly departed from the sepulcher with fear and great joy and did run to bring news to the disciples. And you've got to think, this was an exciting event for them. Jesus is not in this grave. We are going to tell the disciples the message that we've been given. And verse 9, And as they went to tell the disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. These are his mother and Mary Magdalene and maybe, maybe some other women. You know, I don't remember if there was any other women with him at that time, but definitely those two. And they worship him. And we see Jesus walking, and they're holding him by his feet, which indicates that after he resurrected, he had a miraculous healing as well. You don't walk on feet that had nails jammed in them two, you know, three days earlier. Not the nails that would have held him anyway. And having taken the beating that he took, the Roman flagellum, taking chunks of flesh out of him, and all the stuff that he went through, and now he's walking three days later miraculous event as they see him. And he says, don't be afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee and there they shall see me. Now, it's just twice they've been told, go tell them. You think maybe that Jesus kind of understands that they probably weren't going to be listened to the first time? Because, <laughs> well, even if they don't believe the angels, you now saw me. You go tell them that two people now have told them, get to Galilee <laughs> and see me in Galilee. And you know, he's telling them, don't be afraid. All through the scriptures, God says, do not be afraid. Some 336 times in the scriptures it says, fear not or don't be afraid. All right? You get the idea that God doesn't want us to be afraid? Why doesn't he want us to be afraid? Because he's in charge. If we truly understand that he's in charge, there is nothing to be afraid of. Nothing. Because he's in charge. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And you know, there should be no fear involved. And he's telling them, don't be afraid. Now, they have been living in great fear for three days. Why? Because Jesus, the Messiah, is now dead. What has happened to every other Messiah's followers before this? They've been hunted down and executed. They're all, they're, right now, all of his followers... And Mary and Magdalene and Mary and his mother are all waiting to be hunted down to be killed. And now the Passover is done, they're expecting this to happen. They really do expect it to be hunted down and killed and executed. It's a very fearful time for them. And Jesus is saying, don't be afraid. Yeah, I, I'm alive and I'm going to be with you. Verse 11. Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priest all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave them a large sum of money unto the soldiers, saying, the soldiers, and, and saying, Say you, this, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ear, we shall persuade him and secure you. And they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews unto this day. All right. Here is one of the most bizarre uh, excuses for the resurrection that is anywhere out there. All right, the guard who fell away, dead, you know, uh, in a faint, as if they were dead. Uh, some of them went to the, the scribes and Pharisees to tell them, "Hey, this guy that you told us to guard is no longer in the tomb. He's resurrected. He's not there." An angel came and moved the tomb. 
uh, move the stone. All right. This is going to terrify the priest and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin because they have denied that he was God. They denied that he was the Messiah. They have had him executed. And if he is truly alive, they've got a problem on their hands. <laughs> well, that's their thought. Uh, he's going to overthrow the Roman government, and we were afraid he was going to take us. Now he's really got reason to come after us. And they do not want this to become a big deal, so they give the soldiers a large sum of money. In other words, they give them a bribe. <laughs> and here's what they're told to say to anybody who asks them. You are to say, his disciples came by night and stole his body while we were sleeping. All right. Two big problems with this statement. That's the biggest one. If you, if you were the police officer investigating this uh, scene and they're going, we, we were asleep, your first question is going to be, what were you sleeping on guard for? You are, you are going to be executed. You'll be executed for that. That was true in Romans days. It is still true in the armies of today. If you are on duty and you are on watch and you fall asleep, you can be executed for falling asleep at post. It has not changed in all of history. These guards, the very first question is, uh, well, what the heck were you asleep for? Okay, that's the first thing that's going to come. That's exactly the second question. You know, if your house was robbed and you told a police officer, yeah, while I was sleeping, uh, John Troublemaker came in and stole all my stuff, they're going to look at you like, how do you know it was him? You were asleep. Okay, this testimony has so many holes in it that it's not even a funny testimony if you think about it. You know, and this is what people are repeating out there. Okay, the guards were sleeping and the disciples stole, him, stole his body while they were sleeping and people, you know some people are going to ask, well, well, how do they know what happened when they were sleeping? Why were they sleeping? Okay. Uh, I, yeah, but again, we see this whole chain of evidence that God put in place to show Jesus rose from the dead. The guard on the tomb, the guard's not giving this really dumb excuse. Uh, you know, they must have been paid an awful lot of money to take, their, take a chance of their life being, being at, at risk because if somebody high enough didn't believe them and didn't take the bribe, they were going to be executed. This is, this is a capital offense that they've done. If they truly slept on, on guard duty, this is capital offense to them. And then to, to lie and tell them that you know, something happened while they were sleeping. And again, you've got to think about this. Any, anybody who has an ounce of thinking is going to say, well, why were you asleep and how do you know what happened while you were asleep? Yeah, to me, this is one of the, one of the stupidest al alibis ever out there and recorded in the Bible. There's other ones that are pretty dumb. Yeah. But you know, as alibis go and excuses go, people have some strange excuses. You know, and excuses have been right from the very beginning when God met Adam and Eve in the garden and he says, what have you done? And what was Adam, Adam's excuse was really good. God, the woman you gave me, so both of you are at fault. God, you gave her to me. If you hadn't given her to me, I'd have never eaten this fruit and it's her fault, really. You know, uh, Eve said the serpent. You know, she pointed right to the serpent, which was half true. You know, she still made a decision and God didn't even give the serpent a chance to speak. Okay, but we see this all through the scriptures, excuses, and usually terrible excuses for activities that are being done. And 
and then they said, you know, and by the way, if the governors hear of this and they're going to need it, we'll give them money too. In other words, you know, however high we have to go, we'll bribe whoever we need so that you don't die. It's probably cost them a fortune to, to have this lie propagated cost them a fortune because they had to bribe the guards significantly enough that the guards would say, okay, we're going to take our life in our hands possibly. And each, each level up had to be bribed as well to keep this from being executed. And who knows how high they had to go to get this taken care of. And he says, we, and if this comes to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. In other words, we're going to give him bribes too. Yeah. Nothing, nothing new under the sun. We keep saying that over and over. The government, government officials are, have, have been corrupt. Not all of them, but many of them have been corrupt ever since the very beginning. And here we see the same thing. You know, if your bosses find out and make a big deal out of it, we'll, we'll buy them off. We'll, we'll give them enough money to buy them off. And so it says, so they took the money and this, and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day as of the time when Matthew was writing it and even through our day. We, we have that same thing. Yeah, see, the, we, we, we read, we heard, you know, that the disciples stole his body. I go, did you read it closely? Have you read it really closely to know what they said? No, not really. And, you know, it's not just the Bible that gives this testimony because it's an amazing. Being Romans, Romans had a very strong bureaucracy. They made reports for everything. And many of their reports are still around in museums to this day. And we know this, this report was, was propagated by them. And we know that it was said by them. The historians have marked it down. So it's not just the Bible that states this. And you know, again, to me, it's just how dumb an excuse can you make while we were sleeping? I would have at least said somehow they overpowered us and, and, and took us while we were you know, tired or something. We weren't sleeping, but they overpowered us while we were halfway there. Yeah, knocked us out while we were kind of, uh, uh, we, were, we, were, we were at the end of our shift and it was a hard shift, you know, and we were, and they got us right at the end of the shift before the next group came on. You know, something of that nature would have made a whole lot of sense of, hey, we were sleeping, we were just, you know, not doing our duty and they stole the body. They moved a, they moved a great big stone so quietly they didn't wake us up. They carried the body through the midst of, the, midst of us without waking us up. And we knew it was them. And we knew it was them, by the way. <laughs> had to be them, would be nobody else. Uh, verse 16 on, then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke unto them saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go you therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do observe and teaching them all to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the ends of the world. So here, we jump quite a bit with, with Matthew. He jumps straight from the resurrection to 40 days away when Jesus meets them on the Mount of Olives and talks to them. And he gives them the command, all power is given unto you. And you know, we have power that we don't even begin to understand and, and contemplate. We have such great direction from God. The Spirit indwells us, and we have power, and we don't appropriate that power often enough. We have power to witness. We have power to pray for people and have miracles happen. Jesus said, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, you could tell this mountain to be, cast, you know, be removed and cast into the sea. 
He says, I've given you all power in heaven and in earth. Go and teach all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that is the call not to the disciples, but to all Christians. Go and teach others about Jesus. And, you know, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Do you know, and I've said this before, even if you don't think you know a lot about God and the Bible, if you've been studying the Bible, you've been under, listening to teachers for any length of time, even a short period of time, you know more than most unsaved people about the Bible. And feel confident in that. And if they ask you a question you don't know, that's, that's fine. Go find the answer for them. But we all know something more than somebody else. Now, does that mean we know everything? I don't even know everything. And I know a lot about the Bible. And I don't know everything there is to know about the Bible. And I still find new things out all the time. We will never know everything there is in the Word. We just can't. It's God's word. It's always going to be more in there for us to get. And then when we get to heaven, he's going to give us all kinds of new things to learn. <laughs> and, but he tells us, go. Go and teach others. And we want to be able to lift Jesus up and really bring him up in, in who he is. Because he is the Savior. And beyond everything else, as I taught in the How to Study the Bible class and everything else, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. And if we run out of things to say and teach, he'll teach for us. All we do is open our mouth and we step out in faith to serve him. Now, and as I said, Matthew jumps from the resurrection all the way to, to the 40th day when they get on the mountain and Jesus disappears. But it starts out with Jesus visiting them in an upper room. And Thomas isn't with them. And he says, here I am, I'm alive. Up to this point, the disciples have still been terrified. You know, these guys are really kind of cowards in many ways at this point in time. The women have been brave enough to go to the, you know, stand at the cross. They've been brave enough to go to, go to the tomb. And they went and they saw Jesus and they knew Jesus. Jesus appears to them and says, be at peace. A week later, Thomas is now with them and he comes and sees them again. And remember, Jesus is spending, Jesus spent 40 days with the disciples between the resurrection and the Mount of Olives, teaching them, walking with them. And remember, he meets uh, Peter at the beach, and, uh, and after, this, after Peter is denied him, Peter decides, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to go back to fishing. I've, I've rejected Jesus. There's no way that I'll ever be used by Jesus again. And Jesus uses him anyway. Go feed my sheep, he tells him three times, and uses him and makes him a mighty warrior. And he gets the privilege of being the first one to preach when, on the day of Pentecost, leads 3,000 people to Christ. All right? That's Peter, the one who denied him, the one who was so fearful that he says, okay, I give up, I'm going back fishing. Uh, Jesus, Jesus, even if he is alive, and you say he is, even if he is alive, he's not going to want to use me. I'm going to go back to fish. And I love that story about Peter because it really shows us that even when we totally fail God, he want, he's ready in, to use us when we confess and repent. And we need to keep that in mind at all times. All right, we're going to close here at the end of Matthew. I'm going to figure out what book we're going to start next week. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come before you and just to worship you and see the power of your resurrection, the glory of your resurrection. And we just thank you in your son's name. Amen. <laughs>